Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. You know, we, we one time, we get caught up so often doing things this certain way that it starts to just become ritual and routine. And I've given some thought to coming in on a Sunday morning, throwing everybody for a loop by just preaching right off the bat and doing the singing at the end or, or doing the offering at the beginning and doing, you know, throwing everything out. And I'm always reminded that once uh, at a former church where I was at, we walked in and we were all sitting down. And uh, the pastor got up to do the, the opening announcements. He did the announcements for the church, the pastor did. And he got up, and the first thing he said was, I want everybody to get your stuff, and I want you to move to a seat as far away from the seat that you're in as possible. And everybody looked around like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, go, find a new seat. And so if you normally sat in the back, you were supposed to come to the front. If you normally sat in the front, you're supposed to go to the back. And you'd be amazed at how many people like wouldn't move at all. They just kind of stood there like, uh-uh. This is my seat, so uh, I try not to change too much on us, but uh, sometimes it's good uh, if we'll move around a little bit and realize that uh, it doesn't matter where we're sitting or what we're singing, it's really just about worshiping God. But to open up to the book of James chapter 4, book of James chapter 4 will be in verses 6 through 10 tonight, and the title of this evening's message is Humility Cures, or Humility Is the Enemy of friendship with the world, or humility cures friendship with the world. And so we continue our study through the book of James, and we come to a, a place in this fourth chapter, and really, we're kind of expanding uh, the thoughts that we established last week. Uh, these first 12 verses uh, of chapter 4 are really kind of a larger section uh, of this text, and we kind of break it down into three kind of subsections, you might say. We kind of break it down into three smaller messages because of, one, because of time and understanding, and it gives us the ability to kind of focus on each section individually. So, so before we move into to these next verses tonight, we want to recap just a little bit, not the whole sermon, obviously, but just a little bit of what we touched on last week. And we looked at our quarrels, at our strife, at our uh, enmity with one another, at our problems with one another, at our fights, you might say. And we said that these things come from our worldly desires. They come from uh, the desires in our heart that stem from the worldly wisdom that James touched on at the end of chapter 3. And, and that really that's the, the references at the end of chapter 3 tell us that godly wisdom or, or wisdom that comes from salvation, wisdom that comes from God doesn't lend itself to these strife and quarrels because godly wisdom is peaceable. Godly wisdom is merciful. Godly wisdom uh, extends that grace because it understands the grace that is being extended to it. And so quarrels and fights cannot come from godly wisdom. Quarrels and fights have to come from worldly wisdom. So when we have enmity with one another, when we have strife, when we have quarrels, we have to recognize that these things come from a place that is not godly. Fights and, and disagreements and disruptions, those things within the body of believers never come from godly wisdom. They always come from a place of pride or envy or self-seeking, self-serving desire. That is where fights and quarrels always come from. 
And in verse 4 of chapter 4, we see kind of the theme for this whole section. There at the end of verse 4 of chapter 4, it says something. It says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's really the whole idea of this section of 12 verses. It is to be an enemy of God and to be a friend of the world or to be a friend of God and to be an enemy of the world. And so the idea is this. If you are a friend of God, if you are living out of godly wisdom and living in light of your salvation, then here are the ways that you're going to interact with people. Here are the ways you're going to recognize quarrels and strife. Here are the ways you're going to live your life. Uh, and the flip side of that is if you keep running into these quarrels and you keep running into this strife and you keep having these problems that go on, then you need to recognize that they come from a place that isn't godly. They come from a place that doesn't root itself in godly wisdom. And so the whole real theme is, is that we would ask ourselves this question. Are you a friend of God? Or are you a friend of the world? Are you living your life in light of a knowledge of, of a separated, consecrated life? Or are you living your light in a, a friendship of the world? And if you think about it, that little section... From a broader scope of the whole book of James, what have we said that James is saying through this whole entire letter that he's writing to the believers? Here's how a believer ought to live. If you're not living that way, you need to ask yourself, why? Why not? And that's a difficult question because we get so comfortable with a lot of things. But our salvation is something that we need to be comfortable in. We can be comfortable that once we know God, no one can pluck us from his hand. No one can take you from the Father's hand. Once you've given your life to Jesus, that is signed, sealed, delivered, set. Nothing can change that. But, but, you need to focus on living a life that honors God. How am I living my life in light of the fact that I've been saved? Because even once we've been set free from sin, we can still sin, right? We can still go down those roads. And so James is saying, you need to examine yourself. How are you living your life? And that's really what this little section in chapter 4 and really what the whole letter. So please stand in honor and reverence to the reading of the holy words of our holy God from James chapter 4 verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace and says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father God, God, humble us this evening. God, remove any pride that may be swelled up inside of our hearts. Remove anything that might hinder us from worshiping you this evening, because you are a holy God. God, draw us nearer to you as a people. That we might glorify you. 
And God, we will honor you and praise you and give you the glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray, as all God's people said. And you may be seated. <clears throat> so verse 6, we kind of touched on it last week. And so we're going to back up real quick as we, as we take off. And it's kind of the, the anecdote for quarrels. And so those first five, five verses of chapter 4 start to talk about the quarrels and the strifes. And we said verse 6 kind of gives us that anecdote for the quarrels. What, what is the, uh, what's the pill? What's the solution? What's the thing you can do uh, for quarrels in your life? And it simply is really to humble yourself. And so how can we humble ourselves? Well, we have to recognize that he gives us more grace because God is good and doesn't throw in the towel on us. Let me say that again. God is good and doesn't throw in the towel on us when we quarrel or when we show pride or when we cause strife or when we do these things. God doesn't throw in the towel on us. He gives us more grace. He gives us an opportunity to humble ourselves in his presence. This verse... Uh, verse 6 in the italics in most of your Bible shows us that it's a reference to another place in the Bible. It comes from Proverbs 3.34. And that verse actually shows us that the word for humble there, to, to be humble, God gives grace to the humble, is the same word for oppressed that James used when he was describing the poor brother earlier in chapter 1 of his letter. And, and you'll remember what he said. He was talking about the rich and the poor. And he said the rich would be brought down. They would be humbled and in what he said, those that are already humbled, those who are oppressed, they'll be exalted and lifted up. It's the same language. He was saying that the poor should be made rich, and the rich would be brought down and made poor. And what he's talking about is that the poor would be extended that grace. Now, before some of you pull out your wallets and flip it open and say, I'm already good. I'm definitely oppressed and poor. I don't have any money left in my wallet. He's not really... He's not really just talking about an amount of money there. We said when we went through that message, if you'll remember, that in light of a world situation and a worldview, we're all pretty wealthy. We all have more than most people that would be considered oppressed or poor. And we said it's really talking about a place where you don't come to value money so much, you come to value God the most. A place where you have come... Because you don't have the things of this world to depend on. You come to depend on God for everything. You're not dependent on yourself for anything, but dependent on God for everything. And so that's where we need to be. We need to be humbled to the point that we depend on God for everything. But we don't hit that 100% of the time, do we? We don't, we don't nail that down. We're not always meek. We're not always humble. We're not always where we should be. Sometimes our pride and our envy comes about. Sometimes we have quarrel. Sometimes we have strife that comes out in our lives. And so verse 7 through 10 starts to touch on what do you do in light of the fact that you're not going to humble yourself 100% of the time? That's really what James is doing. He says this is what you should do there in verse 6. And in verse 7 he says, but you're not going to. So here's what you got to do next. And so verse 7 introduces, therefore, and you see that therefore, right? It's a connector word. Connects us to those verses before. Therefore, since you're not going to do that, therefore do this. Submit to God. This is how you start to humble yourself. You're not going to do it, so I'm going to give you pretty little steps. So submit yourselves. It's the exact opposite of the word that God used for God resists the proud. It says, so submit yourselves. And it's kind of a suggestion of leaving one's own thoughts and desires 
to submit to someone else's thoughts and desires. And so it says submit to God. So that's where we have to start. If we're going to humble ourselves, we have to leave our own thoughts and desires and place ourselves in line with the thoughts and desires of God. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Leave your own thoughts and desires behind. Submit to God. There, good, good job. You guys have the sermon. We'll go home. You got the clucks of it, right? It's not that easy to do that, is it? Sometimes our pride starts to swell up. So why do we have conflict with one another? Because we have conflict with God. We have conflict with God. Where does that conflict with God come from? In that we want to promote our own desires. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to submit to God. It's difficult to submit ourselves to the ways of God because of the fleshly nature inside of us. And so where does resolution of conflict come from? It comes from a renewed submission to God. All resolution of conflict between each other starts when we submit ourselves to God. What do you mean, Brother Jason? Well, I mean 100% of the time when there is a conflict, it is because two sinful people want their own sinful desires. We want our own desires. So how do we make our own desires the desires of God? We both have to submit to the desires of God. Sometimes one of us is close in a conflict. You know, I've had conflicts with Liette where I've realized that her desires were pretty godly. Very rarely does she submit to mine. I don't know what that's about. But, but ultimately what has to happen? Sinful people have to step back and say, I'm not going to seek my own desires. I'm going to seek the desires of God. I want God's way to be the highway here. I don't want my way to be the way that it's done. And so he says, submit to God and resist the devil. He doesn't just say submit to God. He goes on and he says, resist the devil. And that word for resist is, is a word that, that speaks of an active attack. And so it's kind of like a... A defense type word where if you were going to fortify a city, you knew that an attack was coming from an intruder and you would actively resist that attack. You would put things in place to resist that attack. And so it kind of shows us, James is showing us, that there's going to be attack from Satan. Satan is going to come on the attack. Particularly when we try to submit ourselves to the ways of God, he's going to begin to attack us. He's going to attack us in our pride. He's going to puff us up, make us believe that our own way is the best way. And so we have to resist that. It's an active resisting of Satan. We should be so submissive to God that we can resist the attack of Satan with our obedience to God. James 1.14 says that Satan doesn't tempt us to sin, right? We give Satan way too much credit on what he does. Satan isn't our temptation. Satan preys on our natural desires of the flesh, right? James chapter 1 tells us that our temptation comes from inside of us, from our own evil desires, from our own evil ways. And what Satan does is he just uses those evil desires that we already possess, and he makes us play on them. He kind of makes a war in our own 
minds, you might say. That we start to battle against ourselves and our, against our own desires. And so we have to recognize that that's what Satan is going to do. He's going to use our fleshly desires. He's going to use our natural tendencies as his weapons in battle. And so how do we fight that battle? If Satan's going to use worldly wisdom to battle us, what do you think our defense mechanism might be? Godly wisdom. God. Right? That makes sense. Back in chapter 3, the end of it, he was talking about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. He was springboarding us. That's why I love going through books of the Bible. He's springboarding us. He's loading us. He's building us up through the whole thing. At the end of chapter 3, he's giving us godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Beginning of chapter 4, he says, you've got strife, you've got fights. Now we're in the middle of chapter 4. And he says, it's from your pride. It's from your self-seeking desires. They're rooted in the worldly wisdom. Your worldly wisdom and your pride. It sprung up from Satan. How are you going to resist Satan? With godly wisdom. It goes all the way back and it just keeps building itself bigger and bigger and bigger. And bigger and James is saying, you got to go back here and recognize where are you going to battle Satan? You're going to battle worldly wisdom by tapping into your godly wisdom, your prayer life, your study time, your fellowship with other believers, your time spent in quiet with God. That is where you battle Satan. You cannot battle Satan in a worldly battlefield. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? He's the king of the worldly battlefield. It's like going up to the biggest dude in town and saying, I'm going to take your town. It's just stupid. It don't make no sense. But you pull him out in your battlefield. You bring Satan to God's battlefield where God has the rule and God has the dominion and he's running wild in your life and you're tapping into that heavenly wisdom. What does it say that Satan's going to do then? Flee. Why is Satan going to flee when you battle him with godly wisdom? He can't win. Guys, Satan has been battling God since he became Satan. And he's never won. And I've read the book of Revelation, and most of you have too. He never wins. He never wins. So what does he do when you resist him with godly wisdom? He has no choice but to flee in the sight of God. No choice. Because he can't win that battle. So he's going to go to another battlefield. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to leave you alone. He's going to probably come back and try to attack some other form of worldly wisdom in your life. And then you're going to have to humble yourself in that area. And then you're going to have to go through the battle again. But bless God, God don't leave you nor forsake you. So you can always tap back in to that godly wisdom. So then look at verse 8 with me. As James introduces us to a positive exhortation, an exhortation with a promise. Draw near to God and he will... Draw near to you. And so we draw near to God. God will draw near to us. It's really the privilege and the promise for the believer that if we will draw near to God, if we'll come to God, if we'll seek his face, he is going to be there. I don't know about you guys, but I like that thought. I like knowing that God's always going to be there. I'm reminded 
As I've watched my kids grow up, we're very blessed that my wife's grandmother has a swimming pool. So when a lot of people are trying to find places to swim, we've always just had a place to take our kids to swim and, and teach them how to swim and all of those things. But I'm always, you know, we're always petrified of the kid that's going to just jump in the water and just drown, right? My wife worries to death. And so anytime we're within 12 miles of a swimming pool, we're supposed to watch the kids with like laser sharp focus and not speak to anybody else and all this. But one thing I've noticed about my kids is that if I'm in the water, my kids are fearless. They'll run, they'll jump, whether they can swim or not. They, they, all of my kids have, have never been afraid as long as I'm in the water. But the minute that I get out and sit on the side, even with floaties on, my kids will run to the edge and look. Are you still there, Daddy? Are, are you still there? You're not in the water anymore, Daddy. That's the way we can be with God, except for we can know that he's always in the water. Does that make sense? We don't have to wonder if when we come to seek his face, if he's going to be there. He's never moved. He's never moved one iota. He's never changed one jot, one tittle. The God of creation is the same God today. He's the same God tomorrow. Never changes. And we can take solace in that, that when we draw near to him, he is going to draw near to us. As we battle temptation, as we seek to resist the devil, we can stand on that promise that he's going to be there. And he's going to draw near to us. And at the end of verse 8, though, James starts to talk about something. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And, and what James is talking about here is, again, that active role of us. So he was talking about actively resisting the devil. And now he's talking about actively killing our sin and the role that we play in that. When he talks about cleansing of hands and purifying hearts, we talked about this back earlier in the writing of this time, it was quite common for them to kind of personify a part of the body. And so when they talked about stealing, they would talk about how the hand was the thief, how the hand had taken part in that stealing. And we understand now that what the hand does is really just an outpouring of what the heart is. We talked about it with the tongue. What the tongue says is really just an outpouring of what the heart already is. So anytime someone says words, it's really a, a, a condition of the heart that's coming out in a condition of the tongue. But James, as he's writing this, in that time they really personified those body parts. And so when he talks about the cleansing of the hands, he's talking about actively the things that you do with your hands. He says, stop Doing these things. Cleanse your hands from these sins. Stop doing these things. We have to battle against those sins. And that's how we begin to purify our hearts. Obviously, we're not talking about salvation purifying of hearts because we can't do that anyway. James was very clear that we don't do anything to cause salvation. He's talking about once we come to know Jesus in light of that, in light of our godly wisdom, we don't want to sin the way that we used to sin. We don't want to do it anymore. And so he's telling us to be killing our sin. And he goes back to, to he talks about being double-minded. If you remember back in chapter 1, he was talking about how if you have the faith in God, then you ought not ask God in doubt. 
To ask God, doubting that God to answer your prayers, is being double-minded. It's not putting your trust and faith in God for salvation and then not believing that he can take care of your earthly problems, essentially, is what James was saying. And so he's saying, we don't need to have this double-mindedness in our faith. We need to put our entire trust, our entire faith in God, and then we need to put our entire obedience in God. And that means we ought to be killing our sin. James is is telling us that we, as believers, ought to desire to kill the sin in our lives. As a Christian, will you sin? Of course. As a Christian, will you fail? Of course. As a believer, will you still slip into those temptations? Will you still do the things that you don't want to do? Of course. But as a Christian, you won't be happy with yourself when you do those things. As a Christian, you won't want to stay there in those things. You can't live in the sin that you used to live in in light of your knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Savior. The great Puritan preacher John Owen had a great saying. He said, be killing sin or it be killing you. Be killing sin or it be killing you. And his whole thought was this. If you're not actively killing sin as a believer, then the sin in your life will eat you up. It will eat you apart. If our mind is truly on Christ, then it can't be truly on the world. It's not possible. So verse 9 gives us this mindset. starts to talk about our mindset. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Your laughter turned to mourning. Your joy turned to gloom. It's kind of a Nice verse, isn't it? That your laughter turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. Joel Osteen wouldn't like that verse very much. <laughs> In light of the context of chapter 4, James is saying, when we have these quarrels within our own lives and we have these quarrels within the lives of our churches, when we have these strifes and pride comes up in our lives, we should not be able to be nonchalant about it we shouldn't have laughter and joy and 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 all of these things when we're in the middle of these storms we ought to be in mourning over the way we sin and over the way we act when we look at our lives and see how wretched we are we ought not be able to look at our sin and continue in laughter and continue in joy and continue in happiness We ought to look at our life, we ought to look at our sin, we ought to look at our situation, and to be quite frank, it ought to make us sick at our stomach. It ought to make us mourn. That's the language there suggesting the mourning like you do when you you grieve the, the loss of a loved one. Think about that. The the pain and the agony that you ought to feel about your sin ought to be the same as the pain and the agony of the mourning over a loss of a loved one. The way that you weep and lament when someone you love passes away ought to be the way you weep and lament when you recognize how far from the will of God that you are. So the suggestion of these verses is that in order for a wretched double-minded, quarrelsome person to humble themselves. We must attack our sin and we must be grieved by our condition. When will we attack our sin? 
when it grieves us to the point that we do something. I see that all the time in counseling situations. Somebody comes and he's like, well, brother, I got this problem, brother Jason. And I can almost, unfortunately, I can almost always tell by the state of their mind in reaction to their problem whether or not they're ready to lay that problem down. Because a lot of people come saying they want to lay it down, but they haven't recognized what it's doing to them yet. And until you recognize what it's doing, you're not going to be willing to pay the price to agonize over it and attack it. We have got to see our sin for the rebellion to a holy God that it is before we will attack the sin in our lives. So to sum it up in verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. That I believe the King James says, and he will exalt you. I like that word better. Humble yourself and be exalted. Same language that we saw. James has a way of doing this throughout his letter. Same language that we saw in chapter 1 when he was talking about the poor brother who had nothing to lean on but God would be exalted. He would be lifted up. When we grieve and attack our sin and humble ourselves to the place where we say, God, I am nothing but what you have made me, that's when we'll be exalted. That's when we'll be exalted. When we say, God, not of me, but of you, that's when we'll be lifted up. We're called not only to believe the words of the Bible, but we're called to believe in the providence of God that is revealed in the words of the Bible. Let me say that again. We're called not only to believe in the words of the Bible, but the providence of God that is revealed in those words. And that is that he is a faithful God. That rings true from Genesis through Revelation. God is a faithful, faithful God. And that is the joy for us. That's the joy for us as a sinful people, is that God is faithful, and if we can humble ourselves in his sight, he will lift us up. So how do we battle the pride? How do we battle the strife? How do we battle the sin? By humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord and giving it all to him. Let's pray this evening. Father God, God, we come to you and we recognize that it's James pins this letter under your Holy Spirit's guidance. Sometimes he pierces our soul with his words. He calls us to examine places in our lives that we don't like to examine. To look at the sin in our lives and have to call it sin. But God, give us the courage to heed these words from you, God. To heed these words from you that we would battle against our sin and that we would be consecrated and that we would draw nearer to you. And God, thank you for your promise. Oh God, thank you for your promise that if we will draw near to you, 
God, you will draw near to us. And so, God, as we close this evening, every head remain bowed, every eye remain closed. As Brother Roger plays, I want to ask in the house this evening, I want everybody to do me a favor. It's going to be a little different for a Sunday night especially. I want to ask you to look at your life. What is it? What is it in your life that you need to give to God right now? What sin, what strife, what quarrel, what worry, what anxiety, what fear, what problem, what discord? What do you need to give to God right now? And as Brother Roger plays, I'm going to call you to heed the conviction of your Holy Father. And give it to him. You can come to the altar. You can do it where you sit. Every head's bowed. Every eye's closed. Nobody's looking if you want to come forward. You ain't got to worry about somebody wondering what's going on. And you can do it where you sit. We're going to take just a moment. And just give it to God this evening. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.